Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. What's up, y'all? It is Tamarcus Raglan here with y'all again, along with my co-host, Adam Hawkins and Elizabeth Woodson. How y'all doing today? Doing good. I'm great sitting next here, next to you here, man. Oh, lovely. I also can't talk, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll work it out. We got time. We're starting we strong. Time. And today we are honored to have with us KJ Ramsey. KJ Ramsey is a trauma-informed licensed professional counselor and a gifted writer. Uh, she's released a book called This Too Shall Last, as well as The Lord Is My Courage, which we'll be talking about today. She just released another book called The Book of Common Courage that is a beautiful collection of poems and readings that is um, a companion to The Lord Is My Courage. And so we're excited to get to talk to her today about her book and her work and just welcome her to the show. KJ, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And also, I just want to say it's really cool that you three are in the same room. Usually when I am on a podcast with multiple co-hosts, they're all on like different places in Zoom. It just has to be really great to be together when Mm. you do this. You know, I think so as well. It's a blast. (laughs) It's fun. It definitely adds to the dynamic of the conversation. It wouldn't be the same if yeah. we weren't in the same. Yeah, room. yeah. yeah. I, w- I so, wouldn't do it without you guys here with me. Uh, so. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Anyway, so thanks for letting me be part of that. Yes. yes. Hey, and next time, if you want to come and be in person too, we could come do on it. in. Make it happen. Yeah. Where, where are you? Where are you? We're in Dallas. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm in Colorado Springs. I okay. just we just moved here from Denver. But one month ago, exactly. But okay. yeah. Okay, Colorado. so we're going to go up there. Yeah, we'll go yeah, there. That's probably <laughs> better. That's probably better. Good, Especially yeah. the okay. summer. We'll go in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. there you go. You're welcome to come. You're welcome to come. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I just want to kick it off. You you open your book uh, in, the, in the introduction or the invitation, as it's called. And it says, uh, this is a book for the broken. Could you talk to us a little bit about, uh, one, just your experience as a licensed professional counselor and then and specifically in the area of trauma and then how just a mixture of that and even just your own story and life experiences led you to writing a book like this. Yeah. Um, it probably, you, you earlier you were saying you, you opened up and you're like, all right, we're going deep. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the kind of book that you just set out to write. It's the kind of book that your life asks you to write Mm. um and so really my life experiences of experiencing um spiritual abuse and having to choose to recover from religious trauma were the impetus for writing this book because i didn't have a resource that could essentially through the page, like look me in the eyes and see my heart and say, it's okay to be broken and you are still beloved. Um, even when someone who calls themselves a shepherd who stands in front of God's people and proclaims God's word has spoken evil over your life Mm. and over your character, Mm. God still calls you beloved. And, um, so it's not in my personal story, Um, which so much of the Lord is my courage is my husband and I's story Mm -hmm. of being spiritually abused um, as leaders in the church. And, um, but as a, as a therapist, as a trauma therapist, you know, I began all of my books um, with an invitation. I call it that instead of an introduction because I, I want, it's not something to skip over. It's, it's a place to meet. It's a place to, um, sit down and as though we were just meeting and having coffee and to say, Hey, you really are welcome here. And your brokenness is allowed to come with you. Um, Because I think that in the church, we are conditioned and in culture in general, Western culture in general, we're conditioned to hide our brokenness Mm. inside because we are afraid that we will not be accepted if we show it. Um, so I like to set off right from the bat saying, bring it with you and your pain is welcome here. And 
I'll show you mine first mm. and then you can look at yours. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a beginning, but as a, as a therapist, I work especially, um, in treating complex trauma, um, and religious trauma is a subset of complex trauma, but a lot of the folks that I work with have experienced both spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Those aren't, aren't always, um, coexistent, but they often are, um, and a lot of childhood trauma of attachment wounds, um, neglect and sexual abuse, things like that. Um, and so, so much of what I write is informed by the holiness that I get to witness in my clients and their courage to heal and their courage to, he- to actually come to the place of trying to hear that God still calls them beloved, just like the father called Jesus beloved in the river. Mm, that's really beautiful. And in, I mean, it's an understatement to say it's important work. And I really uh, want to dive into the concept of church hurt, spiritual abuse, what it looks like to heal from that when, I mean, in in some ways it, it almost seems impossible as somebody on the, on the side of shepherding. You know, there's mm-hmm. so much... In terms of just trust and the ne- the necessity of trust, the necessity of vulnerability, all those kind of things, and the necessity to be able to speak into somebody's life, both admonition and encouragement, it's just such a hard thing. And so, anyways, we'll get there. We'll get there. But first, we talked. You talked a lot <laughs> about certain. You you use some maybe terms that could be technical, but also have a common parlance. So the first one to maybe just unpack for us uh, that's helpful is the word trauma. It feels like a big concept. It's something we hear a lot, especially now, or I think we hear more. When I was a kid, it was like Mm -hmm. uh, there was a show called Trauma, Life in the ER that I love because Mm -hmm. I love like medical shows. (laughs) But it was mainly, maybe I guess, and I'm old, so uh, that's our joke. If you're old, I'm old. You're not old. But I think, um, you know, maybe when I was younger, when I heard trauma, I guess I thought of like medical trauma yeah. or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. But it seems that the term has expanded a bit, uh, or at least I'm speaking personally, expanded for me. Could you maybe give us a working definition? Uh, it doesn't have to be the most technical, but just it, when you use the term trauma, what are you talking about? How And what are various ways it could maybe manifest itself? Yeah. So the psychologist, Francine Shapiro, and I, I cite this in my book yes. too. Um, she's the founder of EMDR, which mm-hmm. is one of the a very common um, modality that's used in the treatment of trauma. Francine Shapiro talks about trauma as any event that has had a lasting negative effect. That is a very broad definition, sure. but it's it's important for us to acknowledge that when there is a lasting negative effect on our capacity and ability to cope and to commune, we have experienced trauma. So Mm. um, trauma, in my understanding, I work very closely with our bodies, with somatics, and with especially the the way that our nervous systems are always seeking to bring us into safety and connection. Mm. And from a nervous system regulation perspective, trauma is any experience that reduces our capacity to connect, cope, and commune. Mm. Trauma is when the nervous system has had to, as a function of survival, in the way that God made our good bodies to survive and not die, (laughs) um, has had to shut down in such extreme ways that we become splintered Um, And we become less capable of living in a nervous system state that allows us to connect, to cope, to commune. Mm. And so the treatment of trauma is about bringing the self back together so that we don't have to live in a state of stress and a state of fear constantly but that we can come to our lives with the courage to show up in our actual lives as we are right now. Um, mm. So that's kind of my bit of a, a working definition of I trauma. Like it's about our, about our capacity to connect, cope and commune. I really like that. So any, 
event that's had a long-lasting negative effect on us. Mm -hmm. The nervous system seeks safety and connection. Trauma is something that interrupts that. Uh, and the healing of trauma, or that severs that, it splits us, I think, is kind of a way I heard yeah, you say it. Yeah. And the the mm -hmm. the way to heal from that is to make us whole again, uh, mm. to, to bring those pieces to back together. To come back together. Right. Yeah, and I just want to point one other, one other thing out. Um, as somebody who works with complex trauma and in this discussion about religious trauma, right. is um, trauma is not only the bad things that happen to us okay it's also the absence it's also the absence of the good things that should have happened wow mm. and so in the context of religious trauma we're talking not just about spiritually abusive leaders who yell at us demean us have insanely high expectations of us um, who use their spiritual authority to put us down and control mm. and coerce us. We're not just talking about that. Mm -hmm. While that is incredibly important and we need to talk about it. Right. But we're also talking about the absence of attunement mm. of um, our parents, our pastors, our mm. caregivers, our coaches, our friends, not knowing how to attune to our whole selves and offer up the the witness the witnessing kind presence of love, gentleness, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, offering that up um, when we don't have enough of that in our lives and the people around us, we, our bodies will not feel adequately safe. And we will over time when we're in a consistent and we're consistently in an environment where we are not adequately loved, seen, safe, and soothed we will experience trauma mm. and we will experience that splintering. So I just think it's really important for folks to know that you can have not had one horrifying mm -hmm. large experience mm -hmm. happen to you and still had experienced trauma. That seems really important. You know, that is huge. Yeah. Very but, huge. Can I ask this question and it's not to minimize anybody at all, but Given that definition, it seems safe to say that on some level, I'm just going to say on some level, if you imagine it as a continuum, that maybe everybody has experienced some level of trauma. Would you go that far or not? Um, is that a does it does yeah. saying it that way diminish those who've maybe, you know, had a, a, a broader experience? Because I think if you asked somebody, hey, have you had a lot, think of a time that shame invaded you in such a way that or going to the other one have has anybody ever told you they loved you you know it's like i think of like maybe my parents generation where it's like i never heard my dad say he loved me or something like that it's like under this mm -hmm. definition that might be tra trauma yeah there's a couple things there um first of all i won't give you a straight answer because good, i good. I, <laughs> I think this is a hard i think it's a i think that's a very hard question sure and it, um I think there's a lot of uh, flammability to that question, too, <laughs> sure, in, sure. in the culture at large. Right. Um, but I think that something there's two things, one perception to attachment that I'd like to point out. So perception, you can live, you could grow up in the same family. So two siblings in the same family with the same parents in the same church or the same um, collection of socioeconomic factors and one child experiences their childhood as traumatic and the other doesn't. Wow. It's very important with trauma to honor the reality that we all perceive our experiences differently from one another. Mm. And for some of us, the way that we are wired the the composition of our soul and ourselves mm. will predispose us to experience our context as more traumatic than others. You know, I'm a highly sensitive person. I am neurodivergent. I've experienced sexual abuse and all other lots of other kinds of abuse. I'm a bit more predisposed to experience my life as traumatic. Mm. That's real. Yep. And there um so with, with trauma, you have to understand that the individual's experience and their perception of their experience is what 
dictates whether it was traumatic or not. And we have to allow for a, a range of perceptions. And then, yeah, so that's a, that's a hard, um, hard thing uh, when we would love to be able to just, you know, put uh, x-ray up to a person and know you have trauma or you don't right. um, or to say like that was traumatic and that wasn't um, because it's because when we experience trauma, we got to do something about it. And the context, the community around us does too. And I think um, a lot of communities, families, systems in general mm. uh, would prefer not to act. Um, so it's easier to dismiss the person's perception than to honor that that's real for them. Mm. Um, so that's one. Sure. I know I'm talking a lot. No, it's The second helpful. is attachment. The second is attachment. And this is, this is basically the other side of the coin of looking at what I was just saying in that, like, not every, the the data shows us that the largest percentage of people do experience what we call secure attachment, mm. which is when we are able to, in our early years, internalize enough love, internalize enough um, experiences of being soothed and seen and safe that we can carry with us. Um, my my friend and uh, therapist, Sam Jolman, calls it uh, attachment is the experience of something like carried love. Like attachment is when we we have internalized enough attunement that we can carry the sense that we are loved with us wherever we go and whatever we experience. That's secure attachment. Yes. So the majority of people in our country, even uh, technically, according to the data, do have secure attachment. Okay. I think maybe there's some interesting thoughts there on like when we look at people's behaviors, maybe not. Sure. Maybe maybe we're maybe there's not as many people who are securely as attached as um, some of the sample sizes say, but. Um, within on the other end of that spectrum is insecure attachment. And there's different forms of insecure attachment, the ways that we try to seek safety in mm. an environment and a relational context in which we are not adequately seen, soothed and safe. So that can look like avoidance and avoidant attachment pattern, mm -hmm. um, an anxious attachment pattern or disorganized attachment where you swing back and forth between anxious and avoid it, um, which is where, like, prior to a lot of healing work in my life where I existed, mm. disorganized, um, mm. because I'm a complex trauma survivor. Mm. So I think um, it's important with the discussion of trauma just to, to acknowledge that while perhaps most of us have experienced things that are traumatic or contexts that are traumatic, and I would say our society is a traumatizing society. Mm. We do not all internalize that to the depth at which we form attachment wounds. That's helpful. And it is mm. deep attachment wounds that are the, that's the, um, the site and the place which, at which people like me are working on healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. That is really helpful. I, yeah, I'm glad we took the time there. Cause I know even for myself, a lot of times, like, you know, when you hear even words like, you know, PTSD, it, you know, mm -hmm. often I'm like, oh, my first brain goes to, oh, that's like soldiers on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. That's like, right. and it's like, that's not a, a regular civilian life can't sure. experience that. And it's, I think having that, having that, that kind of framework, even for somebody who's maybe currently struggling through something like that, who can, you know, you go through the like mental battles of like, well, like, should this, should I, am I overreacting? Like, should mm -hmm. this, am I, did I do something? Or like, you know, maybe somebody around them's like, oh, I don't think it's that that crucial and like having those kinds of guardrails, even a lot, like you say, in the invitation to allow yourself to be like, okay, well, this is, this is where I'm at. Like, let me, let me honor this. Let me take the steps that I need in order to move towards wellness. Um, yeah. That, that mm -hmm. feels like good distinctions. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you were talking, I realized in all of that, that was a lot of information. <laughs> I didn't talk about what does this, what does this look like and feel like? Mm. Um, it, it, so to be traumatized and to, to live in a body with the nervous system that's more highly reactive to the, the world that you live in. Um, and it can look so many different ways. Um, and we all have uh, what 
the therapist Deb Dana calls like a home away from home. Mm. Um, so different individuals will experience more symptoms of shutdown and um, and depression, uh, lethargy, uh, lack of motivation to to be in their life, um, and and perhaps very dark thoughts, suicidal ideation. Other individuals will live their home away from home. We're all, when I call home, I'm talking about a ventral vagal nervous system state, which is being in a state where you, your social engagement system is able to be online. You're able to connect with the people around you to feel adequately safe or to find safety fairly quickly for yourself. And safety is like the bread and butter of every moment of every day that your nervous system is seeking always Mm. without you realizing it. So our home, we're made to be able to connect and to experience peace and life and joy. That's our home, but our home away from home, the place that we've learned how to live, um, even though it's not the best place for us to reside, will look different. And so Mm. others might live in more of a sympathetic nervous system state of fight or flight. Some people will be, will, will feel very irritated all the time or on edge, hypervigilant, looking focused on this isn't safe, this might be safe, whether they put language to it like that or not. Um, there's We all have different homes away from home. So mm. trauma, often some of the symptoms of how we will, what we'll experience, we'll experience um, somatically. Often um, you might struggle to be able to breathe. You might experience panic attacks. You might have disrupted sleep, nightmares, flashbacks to some of the the awful events you've experienced. And that can include with religious trauma. I, I will, I'll have dreams still about the pastor who abused us. I see his face in my dreams. I hear his words in my dreams. Mm-hmm. I wake up having to check that that wasn't real sometimes. My husband does too. You might have in the middle of the day, sudden flashbacks to being where you were. And there's also things called emotional flashbacks where your body feels like you're back in the situation in which you felt trapped. Mm. Even though in the present, you're not trapped and you're okay. So you might, your body has the felt sense of being back there. We call that an emotional flashback. Um, Those are just like a small handful of Mm. symptoms. Uh, But so much of our, so much, the roots of so much of our depression and anxiety, particularly, um, and also a lot of chronic illnesses, I'll add, as a, as a person with many chronic illnesses, um, are unresolved trauma. And that's not a, a shaming statement. It's a statement of like, your body is bearing witness to the fact that you, mm. you needed more and you were hurt. Mm. And your body's going to keep speaking up through symptoms of range from depression, anxiety, illness, pain until you can listen and soothe. Yeah, as you as you've been talking, um, I think what comes to mind for me is the impact of sin in the world. Mm. Right. And so mm-hmm. like to think about sin um as not showing up the way that God has designed for us to do and to see that God is a God of love who loves perfectly and his love is one that gives for the benefit of another and for us to be people who are turned in on ourselves and you see the ways in which my sin isn't just, man, I just have this bad habit or I do this bad thing. It is that the way that I show up in the world, Mm. not aligned with the perfect self-giving love of God harms other people. Yeah. Not in just the bad I do, but the Mm. good that I don't. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm, that this mm -hmm. harm then gets transmitted from generation to generation because I am pouring yes. out of out of my brokenness. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've spoken so much about anthropology, right? Like you've spoken so much about, yeah. you know, how our, I mean, 
our nervous system and how I love what you said. Our body is bearing witness to the pain that we've experienced. And it's telling the truth until we start listening to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And how much in the church, we just don't have a good biblical anthropology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you speak to that? Can you speak to maybe the ways that we do handle helping our people Listen to their, and really, because I think the entry place is listening to our feelings. And again, this is a tricky place. There's a range to that because we don't want people to be overwhelmed (laughs) by things. But we Mm -hmm. do know it's right and beautiful and good because it comes from the way we've been designed. But can you just speak to the way the church does and doesn't handle our biblical anthropology and how maybe this is an opportunity for us to help our people on a pathway of healing by teaching them spiritual maturity through that lens? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I love that you brought up that we're turned in on ourselves. I I hear in what you said, a reference to, I quote it in the book, but Augustine and others have have called about homo incurvatus Mm -hmm. and say, which is that that curve inward. Um, And that is actually, I mean, it's beautiful that Mm. the, that theologians throughout the ages have had that insight of the way that we become curved in on ourselves mm-hmm. um, because that is what science is also showing us about the way that the nervous system works. Mm-hmm. So all of what we've been talking about today, all of these symptoms, it's that our bodies get stuck in self-protection. We literally get curved in on ourselves. You think about a turtle. Okay. Um, And the turtle needs when like you come up to it and you are too close, where does the turtle's head go? They they take it inward, right? They're protecting the, the, the most vulnerable part of their body that's exposed Mm -hmm. their head. Um, We're, we're like that turtle. Like when we experience threat, we will self-protect. And, uh, and what it's important to point out is that that is, that is part of the goodness of how God created us. Mm-hmm. Our survival responses, even our trauma responses are created by a God who wants safety and life for us. Mm. They're wow. there so that you will not die. <laughs> so all of these things that we experience when we um, start to become in the context of religious trauma, uh, like, highly reactive to being in a church setting and you're having panic attacks when you pull into the church parking lot, Mm. that is a trauma response. And at its heart, you need to know that your body is attempting to do something so good to keep you safe because you weren't safe in the past, which is, I know a little bit of a intense thing to say um, about church, but it's real for so many of us. We were not safe And now our bodies are telling us the truth about how not safe we were and asking us to take way more care to be more safe. So the point here is we become curved in on ourselves um, in that need to self-protect. And when we are continuing to live uh, live in and out of our trauma responses without adequate witnessing and healing, we will remain more curved in on ourselves and more self-protective than we need to be Mm. to be safe in the world now in the present. And so the healing process is all about being able to, when you're curved in on yourself, experience so much love and safety, so much of the face of God, the witnessing presence of the spirit Mm. for, for those of us who are Christians, the witnessing presence of the spirit of Jesus Christ through your own face and the face of someone who is safe and kind and other someone who are too, Mm -hmm. that you don't have to stay in your shell. You can open up and actually show up in the world with love for yourself, others and society. Um, So a biblical anthropology of that, it's, it's so important to, find who we are in the face that God has revealed God's self to us, mm. Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, mm. who lived and still lives at the right hand of the father in a body, mm. a human body is 
the site in which we are shown God's face and God's mm. love. And we look at the life of Jesus and we see Jesus Christ had to learn how to walk, how to talk. We see Jesus Christ experienced betrayal. We see Jesus Christ I think scripturally the evidence is there, had a panic attack in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hmm. We see Jesus wanted his cup to be taken from him, cried out in anguish, felt forsaken by the Father, and yet was loved, and and death could not defeat him, and hmm. he rose. Like that's where that is the heart of our anthropology, as well as who is Jesus? Jesus is part of the Godhead three in one, our biblical anthropology needs to be a reflection of we're, we're told in scripture, we're made in the image of God. God is three in one. We are not just individual beings. We are persons in our relation to one another. Mm-hmm. And it's recovering our inherent interdependence that reflects back the dance between Father, Son, and Spirit the, the perfect diversity and unity at once. It's recovering how we reflect that, that actually becomes the way that we are healed. That like, I actually need other faces around me to show me I'm loved so that I can show up and feel safe enough in my own skin, in my own story. So, yes. <laughs> yes so to much... the biblical anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much there, you know, mm-hmm. so many things. I I think maybe starting to zero in, and you guys stop me. Anybody can stop me, and we can, but just zeroing in a little <laughs> no bit. No one can stop <laughs> I think maybe zeroing in a little bit more on the church hurt aspect. I mean, here's what's, I just found your book so um, helpful, and honestly, it. I know it's deep. I know there's a lot of hard um subject matter walk in but there's a hope there's a hope in it the what we've been talking about all along there's just a deep hopefulness not only Good. that you can kind of wake up which is a scary thing to the idea mm-hmm. because i think um what we've been talking about a little bit is maybe so much of society is traumatizing and then so much of it is built on um not acknowledging or recognizing that it's yeah. traumatic. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. And especially some of yes. the places like like church, right, yeah. or some of these other places can maybe yes. stiff arm um, or dismiss. Uh, and, um, yeah, so I think one is this book helping us wake up to the fact that maybe there has been trauma in, yep. in your life. Okay, that's scary. But then also a pathway of what to do with it. So. I just want to acknowledge that any con- this book is such a wonderful resource for for anyone who's walking through any type of trauma. But there's a specific type of trauma that we've been mentioning and that you've been talking about, and that that just they all break my heart. But it breaks my heart so much because I think, uh, and this is church hurt, right? Mm-hmm. The the mm-hmm. spiritual abuse, church trauma, because. I think the potential to cut someone off from the type of healing we've been talking about, the source of love, the source of true love, Jesus, yeah. right? The perfect picture of love, which has the healing effect of of helping us to to sort of uh, uncurl, you know, unfurl yeah. maybe is the right way and experience uh, yes, true yes. safety. And it just, it's so offensive that people who've been entrusted with that type of love and care actually have misused it to do the very opposite yep. of what Jesus is trying to do. Mm-hmm. It just, it's so heartbreaking. So maybe you could talk a little bit about church trauma, church hurt, how it's maybe unlike other forms of trauma, if that's even helpful to talk about, but maybe just, mm-hmm. and maybe the best part is to say, how can church leaders, how can we best walk alongside people who are healing from this type of trauma from church hurt so one you brought up again like we do live in a traumatizing society we need to get very honest with ourselves about how dissociative our society is Mm -hmm. so um to to define that um dissociation is when we we are we're shutting down because we don't feel adequately safe 
we we kind of like that turtle like go back into our shell um we're not fully there we're not fully present i believe and this is i think a uh a little bit of an inflammatory statement sure, sure. that so much of the american church is dissociative mm. in nature we are addicted to dissociation we are addicted to dismissing the reality of the pain in which we live and the pain of the people around us, Mm -hmm. the communities around us, we are addicted to jumping from the darkness to the resurrection too quickly. And it is truly actually a physiological response to the lack of safety around us, Mm. to relational disputes, to awkward conversations <laughs> to people having different viewpoints than us that we reflexively mm. call what I, I would call light. Dis, we lightly dissociate mm. reflexively. So many of us in the American church, except for we have been trained that that is holy mm. bypassing. Our reality is holy by saying, well, all things work together for good. Well, God is with you. We, we have ways of being that are actually detaching us from being present in the place where God already exists. And we could encounter the healing power of the Holy Spirit here and now. We have to live in reality. So it's going to point out, I think we live in a dissociative culture. And I think that the American church is inherently dissociative. I think there are certain probably places and communities and expressions of church that are less dissociative, mm-hmm. but I think by and large, so many of our expressions of church are not, are dissociative. So there's that. The second thing, I think a, I think a, um, a revelation of a, a way, an expression of that dissociation, that, that active dismissal of reality is even in our terminology. Mm. I don't use the word church hurt. Mm. And I want to read a little passage from The Lord is My Courage to explain why. I'm a writer, so uh, (laughs) a little bit more uh, like say it well in the way that I said it in the book that got very edited. All right. (laughs) I encounter so many clients and readers who are afraid of and even allergic to giving their pain from other Christians a proper name. Mm -hmm. And an interjection here, when we're afraid we will tend towards that dissociative process, Mm -hmm. okay? We fear doing so, giving this pain a proper name. We fear doing so will cut us off from any belonging we have. So we minimize the harm with nicer sounding names and narratives like church hurt and a difference of opinion. My clinical experience, my clinical and personal experience tell me that usually we don't just get hurt. Often we're harmed. And if we can't name the injury, how will we apply the remedy? The truth is, I didn't just skin the knee of my spirituality. I didn't just have a misunderstanding and hold a grudge like a shield over my heart. I wasn't unteachable. I just was no longer willing to give the precious gift of my faithfulness to anyone other than Jesus Christ. Spiritual abuse and religious trauma are terms, counter to the term church hurt, that give us courage to rightly name just how deep those wounds go and thus how far the healing needs to reach. I still believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the dead, so I also believe the church cannot be a communion that crushes. We cannot be people of the Mm -hmm. resurrection when we're silencing anyone who says, your behavior is bullying me to death. Um, I go on and I won't continue, but I think that we have to be willing to re-examine even our inclination to to call the pain and call the wound something that's um, more palatable. Mm. And so I don't personally use the term church hurt, um, even though I know it's like very common vernacular and that's why you're using it and your intent and using it is not malicious, I know. Sure, sure. Um, because I think that we have to, we have to, in order to heal, so both as as people who have been traumatized and to be healers, to be uh, 
leaders who extend the safe and good healing presence of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. We have to be willing to wake up. Mm. Dissociation is a numbing and a, a, a sleepful way of living. Mm. We have to be willing to wake up to the reality of how bad this is so that we can, if, if we can't, like I say, look, if we can't name the injury, how will we apply the remedy? So as leaders, and the second part of your question, as leaders in the church, pastors, et cetera, um, we have to be willing to look very closely with wide open eyes at how much this actually affects us, how deep the wounds do go. With Unless we understand how a person's, how much a person's nervous system and other systems of their body can be affected by the pain of both spiritual abuse and toxic theologies, toxic practices, uh, performative religiosity, unless we look at that with wide open eyes and continue to keep our eyes open, we will um, apply a dissociative remedy to a deep wound that requires honesty and uh, long-term care. Mm. We have to wake up. Hmm. I think that's well said. I don't know, just from personal experience that I'm processing as you're, as you're talking, because I do think there's a level of it's, it's hard to categorize, uh, as you, as you say, spirit, uh, spiritual abuse when you are, I guess when you're in the midst of it and you're trying to, again, um, I think I, I've, I remember even just reading, you talk about there being like a kind of a power authority dynamic that is that is unique that's you know it's not that of a, of a parent or a you know whatever and so it's it it bears a different kind of weight in the complexity of how you even process it and so it can mm-hmm. it can be easy to try to as you say dissociate and like work ourselves work our way around it rather than acknowledging like this is this is what that is like that this was a this was a form of abuse rather um intentionally or unintentionally and being mm-hmm. able to not for the sake of trying to like run the the entity into the ground, but being able to acknowledge this is where I am and what has happened and where I need to go. Um, I, I, I think that was just a, a helpful distinction. Um, I kind of want to press in a little bit more into that. And I guess more so because, you know, deconstruction has been a, you know, a big thing in a uh, kind of going mm-hmm. around and a lot of people walking through and talking about how much do you see this, maybe even that, uh, as you talked about our um, tendency to move towards disassociation. And I don't know, I'm I'm even more curious as you explain, like how much of, of that is informing what we see in um, deconstruction? Is it, you know, are people kind of waking up to like, oh, this is what's going on. And now that is, it, it is so complex and jumbled that they're trying to figure out how much of this is what I believe, how much of this is, because even as you alluded to earlier, you're like, it's not just that we have these interesting ways of like coping with the pain, but we like call mm-hmm. it holy and like doctrine in some yeah. ways. So now you're trying yeah, to tease we've out. It. <laughs> yeah. So you're trying to like tease out like what, like what's Bible, what's my experience, what was wrong. So how, how much of that would you say drives that, that kind of deconstruction? Yeah, I think personally, um, my experience of deconstruction and my, what I have witnessed in the majority of the people that I encounter who are deconstructing is that a major driver of that deconstruction is being harmed by those who should have exhibited love um, Mm. and realizing really, I think often deconstruction is a, it is holy doubt of seeking congruence, seeking integrity, seeking wholeness, because we wake up to the reality when we have been hurt, we have been damaged, and we get to the place where like, you're realizing the, my religious, my spiritual practices, and my theological beliefs, and those of those people in my community, those spiritual practices and theological beliefs that they hold, 
are not leading me into wholeness of life. Hmm. My yoke does not feel easy and my burden is not light. Like we realize there's a mismatch between your experiences of what Jesus has promised, abundant life. Um, your experience does not match what Jesus has promised. You are, and, and this might not be how people articulate it. I think this is the like subconscious experience of so many. It's a, you want to seek actual wholeness. You want the, the abundant life that Jesus promised. And you're realizing these practices, these performative practices, these, these, theolo- these certain theological beliefs are not actually leading to the telos of wholeness. So I want to find the congruent path where my spirituality matches my um, inheritance as beloved and whole. Um, I think that it's often experiences of rupture and pain where we see the mismatch, the incongruence in the church between who we are called to be in Christ and who we actually are that drive us to deconstruct because we want wholeness. We want what God has promised to us. Hmm. Um, So if that helps answer your question, I think there's pain. And I think that that pain actually is really holy. The pain that prompts us to wake up is holy. And we don't have to fear I really believe we do not have to fear um, deconstruction processes because God holds all things together and has goodness and life for us. I don't, I'm not out to be a policeman of God's promises or a gatekeeper Mm. of grace. I want people to wake up to um, see the sacred in every part of their life. Hmm. And find rhythms and relationships that allow them to live fully awake to that love. Hmm. Hmm. I I love that you you go there because I, I think a good place maybe to kind of start to land is looking at really what's kind of the heartbeat I feel like of your book, which is Psalm twenty three, that mm-hmm. just beautifully kind of just walks us through um, and. In it, I feel like all of the things we've kind of talked about already start to come together of um, you, it, you know, even just from reading it, it, it feels as though there was a point where, you know, you've read Psalm 23, probably much like I have and had a, a certain picture of it. And over time, it just started to mean more and take on new colors mm-hmm. in a sense. But it in the way in the way that you um, tease it out. Uh, it almost feels like this commentary that walks us through how, what this biblical anthropology looks like and how God not only is he's he's ministering to the our whole person, the spiritual, the physical, the mental. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe just a little bit of kind of how you got to that point with Psalm 23 and then just, yeah, as we, you know, look to Jesus, I remember, uh, I think it was about partway through the book, I remember just the call you give to to look up and to, to mm-hmm. see the beauty around it. We were talking earlier just of, you know, how beautiful the book is and even the the companion with the with the poetry and the pictures. Like there's this there's this this uh call in the way that we are responding to this that is not only spiritual in nature, but you kind of invite ways for us to physically to involve our bodies uh even into it. And not just in a way that's like here's a technique, but like rooted in scripture of like, here are, here's Mm -hmm. a a biblical picture of how God is leading us holistically, whole person, inviting us to engage with our mind, our bodies. Yeah. I just, I I found that to be so beautiful and compelling. If you could just maybe expound on, on that for us. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I like so many others who have been spiritually abused was the on the receiving end of scripture being used as a sword against my soul Hmm. and i i sat in sermons where the pastor 
was ripping me and my husband and our friends apart without using our names in subtle ways that if you were just a congregation member, you wouldn't know that it was about us, but where scripture and sermons were used to wound, not to heal. And I was coming in as we left, as we chose to leave and resign from our jobs and had to pack up our, all of our belongings. We sold almost everything just to like get a little extra money to get by. Um, as we packed up and we went to live in my parents' basement in a windowless room in bunk beds at almost 30, or I think I was, yeah, I was 30 years old. Um, <laughs> it was as we left, we're driving north um, to Montana from Colorado. We feel like we just lost everything. And we don't know even like, What's what's true anymore? I mean, we want to believe that God still loves us hmm. and that scripture is still for us, um, but it doesn't feel safe anymore. My husband and I looked up, surely, um, as we drive across the state line into Wyoming. It's this open expanse. It's a massive blue sky and pastures as far as the eye can see bordered on the west by large mountains far, far in the distance is a truly spacious place. And we both started to cry. And in our souls, and I believe this is the Holy Spirit, we both were brought to the words um, of Psalm 18. He brought me out to a spacious Mm -hmm. place. He rescued me because he delighted me, delighted in me. Like we both went there. The spirit took us there separately in the same room, like in the same car looking up. Um, and we realized right then, like we thought we lost everything, but God was rescuing us. We thought, okay, we're leaving behind the church, but God hadn't left us behind. And that looking up and, and seeing the actual landscape, this spacious place that we were brought being brought out into um, put me, set me on a trajectory of looking for the good shepherd. Hmm. Um, even when bad shepherds continued to haunt me in my dreams. And it was as I continued to meditate on that good shepherd that I encountered, um, I started to see, I was writing, uh, that summer I wrote my first book proposal. So I was working on my first book and and through that whole process of working on my first book, as a person who's sick, who has a lot of illnesses, I experienced like this strange multiplication that like, I somehow there was more than enough for me to finish this thing, even though I felt so insecure and inadequate for the task at hand as I wrote this too shall last. And I realized, like, I found my story in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in that story, a little boy who's probably poor because he he gave barley loaves, which was the bread of the poor, gives Jesus his loaves and his fish, gives a little bit that he has, and Jesus blesses that little offering, breaks it, and then gives it. And it becomes more than enough to feed more than just the disciples. And I saw as I started to like see this good shepherd I, and, and researched like through theologians like Kenneth Bailey, I, I realized Jesus in that passage is deliberately enacting Psalm 23. Hmm. Jesus is deliberately reenacting the Psalm and saying like, in contrast to Herod, who's back in the capital city, um, I am the good shepherd who actually seeks out those who are hungry and feeds them goodness and love really do follow you. And in, in that passage, he even like, um, he has them lay down in green pastures. He has them sit down on the green grass. Uh, that's laid down in green pastures. Like it's, it's over and over a reenactment. And that led me back to the Psalm to like rediscover that my spiritual inheritance, the inheritance of the whole scope of scripture is that we do have a good shepherd who seeks us who not only seeks us, but hounds us like 
more than any harm can hound us. Hmm. And that God continues to feed us in the presence of our enemies, just like Hmm. with the 5,000 Jesus, there would have been spies from Herod in that crowd. Um, Different theologians have pointed this out. And uh, so in the presence of his enemies who were out to kill him, who want, who were afraid of his power, who thought he was going to overtake the government, maybe who didn't know who is this man? Like they're there watching. He feeds them and he feeds his people in the presence of his enemies. Instead of sending them away to go feed themselves, Jesus feeds them in the presence of their enemies. And Jesus continues to feed me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus will continue to feed all of those whom he loves. Um, So that's how, that's a long story, but that's how I came to Psalm 23. I thought it was trite. I used to think, oh, people just read this at funerals and it, I don't even know. It's just like, pretty sounding words. And when I saw Jesus and I, and I realized like he blesses our little offering, I I realized there's, there's so much more here and I want to see this shepherd and I want to like, look for the shepherd coming to seek me and seek others out in the wilderness. Even when we're out in the wilderness and we can't go to church ever again, the shepherd seeks us. Hmm. That is the shepherd seeks us. Um, man, that is, I feel like that's such a good spot to, to land and meditate and just, you know, thinking back of where we've, what we've discussed so far of, you know, realizing that trauma is this, this complex thing that, um, can come from a number of different ways, whether it's the bad that's happened to us or the absence of good, uh, that, Mm -hmm. that we've received and that that can manifest itself in numerous ways in our person. And unfortunately, because of the broken world we live in, that that kind of uh, hurt can even be had within our faith communities mm-hmm. and uh, from those who've been entrusted to to care and to, to feed, as you've said, and to meditate and um, just bask in the reality, just as you and your husband did, that no matter how many bad shepherds or yeah, just uh, lost uh, souls that 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 harm and hurt. There is a a good shepherd uh, that has overcome the world, who feeds his flock, who cares, who seeks us, who offers us more than the amount of love that we need, who gives us grace and mercy, um, protects us, and then not just that. We know from our New Testament that he, as you described, he also knows what it's like to be hurt, to be betrayed, to um, have people in your own faith community to um, uh, to harm and to hurt, and yet still there's a way to endure that without sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a way to endure that mm-hmm. without uh, abandoning the Father. Uh, there's a way to endure that 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 is still beautiful, um, and then ultimately mm-hmm. he he rises again, um, and we we can we can one hundred percent trust in that right. good Shepherd. And so, KJ, thank you just for your time for yeah. all of your work in the book, and just for your time with us today. If people want to continue to connect with your work what's the best way for them to follow you yeah um you can find my work at kjramsey.com and i am on social media especially instagram um at kjramseywrites um yeah and all my books are linked on my website and elsewhere you can find them all over the place yeah can i read um a prayer to to end us we would love that that sounds beautiful okay um, this is from the Book of Common Courage, and it's in the, sh- the chapter called, Is My Shepherd? It's in response to Luke 4, 1 through 2. Jesus, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. Hungry son. The Father called you beloved, and then the Spirit led you like a lamb out into the scorching sun, where you chose trust in your Father over proving your own power. Lead us to landscapes we would not choose to feed us with trust we cannot lose. Because for far too long, we've been fed sugar by shepherds on stages in words that say fame and power 
and the removal of pain are the proof of bearing your name. But your sonship reveals what no stage can show. It is into vulnerability that you choose to go. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how to best connect with us, as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. See you next time.